Okay, let's look at the book of Revelation together first. Revelation chapters 8 to 10. And uh, I've been endeavoring as we've been studying through the book of Revelation to uh, ensure that our focus stays on Yeshua because the opening lines of this book are the, the book of the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. So this isn't about glorifying evil. It's not about the big question of who's the beast or the Antichrist or whatever going to be. The biggest question in this book is who is Yeshua? And uh, we're going to continue looking at, looking at that theme. So in Revelation chapter 8... We, uh, we're at the conclusion of this series of seals. There's this scroll and it's written on both sides. And it symbolizes this big plan that's being implemented that includes bringing justice to the world. And uh, Yeshua is the one who's worthy to open the scroll to break the seals. In other words, he's the one who is overseeing the plan of the God of Israel as it unfolds across planet Earth. He oversees international affairs. He truly is um, the ultimate king, the, the Melech HaMlachim, we say in Hebrew, the, the king of kings. So here, in 8 verse 1, Yeshua opens the seventh seal, the last of the seven. And uh, it's remarkable. There's just... Everything's quiet for half an hour. So we see that even in heaven, in, in the throne room of heaven, sometimes like there's a very high decibel level. You have those massive creatures shouting day and night about the holiness of Elohim, of God. And then sometimes everyone's just quiet. I wonder if our worship doesn't look like that also. Have you noticed that? I mean, we're, we're a small body. And we're able to be, we don't have a program. You know, we have things that we do, but we don't have a program. The idea is just to get together in Yeshua's name and let Him lead us. And so sometimes we really cut loose in prayer and we just let it rip and we pray loud and we have a real decibel level. And it's awesome. I love that. And, and, and times like this morning, did you notice that? I just felt a calm in my spirit. I just felt like He's here and I just love Him. And I'm just enjoying being with Him. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. I, I hope that we can continue to grow as a people in sensitivity to where His Spirit takes us in prayer and in our gatherings in general. Um, in basically like the, the seal being opened it ushers in seven shofar blasts it'll say trumpet I'm sure in your English Bible but um, the underlying idea there is a shofar blast if you read a Hebrew translation of the New Testament it says shofar in Hebrew so I didn't bring my, mine today maybe I should have but you've all heard a shofar blast if you've been around here for any amount of time so you get the idea with that in um, 8 verse 3, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we see this symbolism before the throne is an altar. It's, a, it's the little golden altar. If you read in the book of Exodus, you discover that in the Mishkan, the tabernacle, there was a little golden altar that was right in the holy place. And only incense was burned on that altar. It was just a small square altar. And then outside in front of the tabernacle was the big bronze altar. The big bronze altars were offerings for sin were made and where most of the, 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 the come and go of the sacrificial uh, procedures happened. And then the priest would go into the holy place and he would sprinkle the incense and he would burn the incense. And I think that happened once a day. So we see here it's talking specifically about the golden altar. That's the little one where the incense is burned. And we see that your prayer is pictured by this incense going up from the golden altar. Then something very cool happens. After the, the smoke of the incense symbolizing the prayers of God's holy people goes up, 
It says in verse 5, Then the messenger took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar. So we see there isn't just incense on the altar with prayer going up. There's a fire on that altar in heaven. And it says that he filled his censer with that fire. And what did he do with it? He says he threw it to the earth. And uh, there, was, there was a significant response on planet earth in, in, because of that. Um, Stuff happened. It was like the beginning of the unfolding of the uh, these seven shofar blasts in the seventh seal. So we have a principle here. This is what I want to look at on a practical level. Prayers up, fire down. Right? Prayers go up, his fire comes down. And it's not just any fire. It's fire from his altar. I, I want to look at a couple of places in Scripture where fire is used as a, as a symbol of something and see what exactly that means. When we pray and when his fire comes down, what does that mean? Um, firstly, we remember all over the place in, uh, in the Gospels. Um, for instance, John the Immerser, Yochanan, he, he said that Yeshua, when he came, would immerse his people in the fire of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So fire often symbolizes the Spirit of God. In um, Song of Songs, Shir HaShirim 8.6, we, uh, we read this, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as fierce as death, jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. So fire is a picture of his love. And not just like, uh, little butterflies in my heart, cushy, ushigushi love. Like, the love that's communicated in Shir HaShirim is a love that is fierce. A love that has a severe side to it when it comes to guarding that love against other suitors or competitors or um, anything that would infringe on that love. It's a fierce love. And it says that fire is a picture of that. Uh, Fire also, this is probably the most common imagery throughout the scriptures, is a picture of justice. Sometimes we use the term judgment and we think of it like... It's bad stuff. I mean, just lots of bad stuff happens to bad people. You know, and it's kind of like, I don't know, when I hear people talk about judgment, my mind automatically kind of goes to gloom, gloom and doom scenarios and maybe people who delight in imagining gloom and doom scenarios falling on the world and stuff. But um, the idea there is justice, and justice is your friend. Justice is a good thing. If you are an oppressor, if you are a total jerk, if you are a person who is using other people, Justice will hurt you because it will stop you and because you will be receiving the recompense for your actions. But if you are a person who is being abused, if you are a person who is being hurt, if you are a person who is the underdog or whatever, justice is your friend because justice is righting wrongs. And uh, I, I, you, you all know the concept of, you know, let's say there's a movie coming out and you watch the trailer of the movie of the DVD. It's like you get a little picture of what it's going to be about. When justice happens in specific situations, it is the trailer of the Day of Judgment, Yom Hadin, when Yeshua comes back and He raises everybody from the dead and then He pays everybody back to their faces. His friends, it's going to go very well for them, enter into the joy of your Master. Great job. His enemies, take my enemies away and kill them. Ouch. So, often the concept of fire is a symbol of the justice of God. And like I said, 
justice is a good thing. Um, the, the, the concept of um, justice also often involves an evaluation. When the fire comes, when justice is applied, then your, your, your actions are weighed. You're, what you're doing is evaluated. And he might give you a big thumbs up and say, you're doing great. Keep it up. Or there might be areas where he'll say, you know what? In this area, like Yeshua said in the first chapters of Revelation, I have some stuff against you. These are some things we need to work through. This is also pictured by his fire. I'll give you one example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. So in this context, Paul is writing to the, let's call it the Messianic community, you know, the, the believers in Messiah in the city of Corinth. And uh, he's talking specifically about people who are coming in and they're serving that community, whether it be through founding it, which was Paul's job, or teaching in it later on. And this is what he says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed. How? With fire. Okay, so the fire reveals what people are doing. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So did you hear that concept there? When the fire falls, when justice comes, then your whole life is laid bare. The light shines on it. And if you have built for eternity, if you have something, like if you have a quality structure that you're, that you're constructing, to use a construction analogy, that's going to stand. But if you've just been investing your life in garbage and wasting your time and indulging in hedonism, it's just going to be a big shambles. It's going to collapse. And uh, you're not going to have much left for it. Um, that's what we could apply on an individual level. Um, on a broader community level, there are times when communities face justice. When, when they go through the fire, hard times happen. And um, that, in times like that, we see what we're really made of. That's the idea there. So how does this apply to this principle here? Prayers up, fire down. Uh, perhaps we could, we could apply these, these concepts here, what the fire symbolizes. When we invest in daily prayer, we will experience a deeper immersion in His Holy Spirit. We will see His power coming through our lives more. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Like, duh. I almost, maybe I shouldn't even take the time to say that. But seriously, it's so easy to get lazy in prayer. It's so easy to be a slacker. Really. How many... I think some people spend more time picking their nose in the course of a day than praying. Really. Like, getting on your knees and praying verbally. And you know, some of us, like, we, we all have an inner dialogue with the Father, and that's an element of prayer that's, that's very precious and very legitimate. You know, you're just driving to work, and you're talking with Him, inside your heart or whatever, and that's good. But we also need to make time to just block everything out of our lives and pray verbally. Pray out loud. Because there's something to be said for verbal prayer. Prayer out loud. And uh, you know what? The kind of the inner dialogue thing, that just happens. You know, you get up in the morning, you do your thing, and you're just talking to him some, and it's wonderful. But the type of prayer where it's concerted, where it's verbal, where it's focused, where you have a lot of oomph behind it, the kind of prayer that changes our city and changes the world, you need to plan for that. That doesn't just happen. So uh, I, I encourage you, if you don't have a regular time of prayer, make a regular time of prayer. Um, whether it, whatever time works for you. For some people, it'll be in the evening, uh, maybe before or after meal. For some people, it's first thing in the morning. Uh, I encourage you also, um, if you have a spouse, pray with your spouse. Be intentional about planning ahead and praying with your spouse. Because um, it'll, really, like, it'll really put your prayer life up to the next level. And like Yeshua taught, prayer when we agree with each other 
has great power. Um, you know, we can also plan to pray with friends, pray as a community, things like that. Like we said, the result is we will see his fire in our midst. Um, the fire of his love is another one. Prayer up, love down. So if you're like, if you're seeing that there's a lack of his power in your life, if you're seeing that there's a lack of his love in your life, if you feel spiritually weak or your heart is cold, there, there are ways to surmount that. There are ways to solve that problem, shall we say. And it usually starts with prayer. Why? Because in prayer you get close to him and he is the fire and he will fill you with his love and he will empower you in, in the assignments that he gives you. Um, I'm just going to give you a quick overview here of um, what breaks out when each of these shofars are blown. I'm not going to focus so much on questions like how or when or who. It's really, it's really easy when you're reading through the book of Revelation to say, you know, who is this going to be? Or, or, um, or how is this going to happen? You know, the mountain, burning mountain falling into the sea. What is that going to be? Is that going to be a massive lava shelf like they have off the west coast of Africa or in Hawaii, collapsing into the sea and causing massive tsunamis? Or is it going to be some type of asteroid or meteor, maybe a chunk of it, um, coming into uh, the atmosphere of planet Earth and wreaking havoc. It's really easy to kind of go into those details, and I'm not, I'm not going to really go there. Just on a practical level, we're going to look and say, okay, on a practical level, what are the results of each one of these things? What's it going to look like for planet Earth when it happens? Um, firstly, in Revelation 8-7, with the first shofar, the result is a third of the global forests are burned up, and all of the temporary vegetation, like grass, etc., is burned up. And again, like um, I, I, I've gone over this, but I'll say it again. The book of Revelation and some of these details about what that's going to look like is not like the core of our faith. Okay, this is relatively like speculative, like even this. Is that symbolic? Does it mean it's all really going to be like a literal third of the forest? I don't know. Right? Um, we're, about, we're about doing the Torah in our lives. We're about the gospel of Messiah. But this is in the Bible, so we do want to have a look at it. Um, 8, verse 8 to 9. Second one, you have massive tsunamis. A third of the ships in the oceans are destroyed. Um, third one, widespread pollution of fresh water supply in 8, verses 10 to 11. I assume there would be significant loss of life in conjunction with that. Uh, fourth, in Revelation eight twelve, you have atmospheric haze blocking the light of the sun and also the moon and the stars. Um, th this is a pretty serious one because we experience this to a certain degree every year in Saskatchewan and I don't really enjoy it. Okay, let's, let's look at the, the, summer, the summer solstice. In the summer solstice, how many hours of nighttime do we have when the light of the sun is eclipsed over our area? We're talking about sun goes down when like 10.30 and comes up at something like 4.30, hey? We get like five hours of night. And you know what? It's pretty nice and warm in Saskatchewan thanks to those increased hours of daylight. Now, when we scroll ahead six months and we hit end of December and we hit the winter solstice, you're all of a sudden dealing with how many hours of daylight in Saskatchewan. The sun comes up at like 9.30 and it sets at 4.30. I think is roughly in, in, around the end of December. That's seven hours of daylight. Okay, so get this. <clears throat> seven hours of daylight at the winter solstice. How many hours of daylight at the summer solstice? About 19. So if you look at that, that's about... How, how many hours difference is that? 7, 19... 
talking about 12, 12 hours difference, right? And uh, what is the result of a significant loss of sunlight in Saskatchewan? We're, we're plunged into a frigid winter. Uh, temperatures plummet often to minus 40. We get several feet of snow, and we have to plug in our vehicles, and we can't suntan. It just Things are different, eh? So if you can imagine planet Earth having a full third of the sunlight being blocked from it for a significant period of time, you're, you're talking about the planet being plunged into a very freaky winter. And even if you're around the equator, it's going to get colder, and you're going to have very strange weather patterns. You're probably going to have snow in places that never get snow. Um, those kind of ideas. So, you know, maybe it doesn't sound like much with um, losing some sunlight for a period of time. That's actually, man, that is not something I would ever look forward to experiencing. We, we, get, we come close to that every winter in Saskatchewan, and that's, that's enough for me. Thank you very much. Uh, number five, this is interesting. 8 verse 13, so um, this, this figure says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, whoa, three times to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. So as if the first four wasn't bad enough, he's like... How, what's another word in our culture for woe? Nobody really says woe anymore. Woe to thee, for what is about to befall thee? I mean, we just don't really talk like that. What's the word like? Bummer. Bummer. Oh, maybe, yeah. That's kind of a, a little bit of a, like, this is like serious trouble. This is massive crisis. Yikes. Yikes. Huge, huge woe. Hold up. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's spelled a different way, actually. Um, the Hebrew word for this, I think you'll like this, is oi. Oi. Um, how many of you... My, my baba, when something bad happens, she says, oi, oi, It's just in my family. You've probably heard me say that. I say it without even thinking. And then I'm like, everyone doesn't say that. I wonder if people think I'm funny. But anyway, that's, that's, um, the Hebrew word is oi. So he says, oi to those on planet Earth because of the three things that are going to happen. Oi, oi, oi. He says it three times. That's right, Teresa. Oi, oi, oi. Um, in 9 verses 1 to 11, the first oi involves some type of stinging creatures. Um, it says it's comparable to being uh, stung by a scorpion. In 9 verse 5, this is the very bright, um, bright verse. It says... There is a specific set of people that they're unable to harm. Uh, it says they weren't permitted to kill anyone. Where is it? In verse, uh, verse 4, sorry. It says they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we see that for the people of God in times of crisis, specifically in this first of the three oys, um, they, they're exempt from this. They have some type of protection. I, I think that's a, good, that's a good general principle. There are times when financial meltdown happens. There are times when there are, global, there, there, are, there are disasters of various types. And the people of God do experience that because they live in the culture. We are in this world. However, there are other times throughout history where the people of God are supernaturally preserved. And uh, this would be one of those instances. The second oi, in Revelation chapter 9, verses 14 to 21, there's an army released from the Euphrates area. Uh, the Euphrates runs through the Middle East, specifically through the modern-day countries of Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. It actually gives the number in verse 16, uh, roughly 200 million. 
I don't know what this would look like. Perhaps this would be some type of massive fundamentalist Islamic move of um, something like that. Again, this is highly speculative, right? But anyway, it, it says in verse 15 that they killed roughly 33% of the world's population. Uh, you, remember, you remember in one of the, uh, the seals that were broken, a quarter of the world's population was killed in those disasters. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wow, that was loud. Which is like um, 1.5 billion people if you're looking at the total population of planet Earth today. Another third would be another 1.5 billion people, a third of 4.5 billion left. Um, and, you know, so between those two things, if they were to happen with a world population of roughly 6 billion, you're talking about 3 billion people dead just from those two disasters. Never mind some of the other ones like, like the biggest tsunamis perhaps the world's ever seen, uh, poisoned uh, water, food shortage, etc. Um, and for those of you who weren't here in previous uh, Shabbats, this is kind of scary to talk about, eh? Um, you know, some people believe that the rapture will happen before these things hit planet Earth. Some people believe that the people of God will go through this time. Um, either way, we established in the first couple of chapters, and I want to repeat that before this is described, it goes into detail about how Yeshua is sovereign over global affairs. He is overseeing what happens on planet Earth. <clears throat> We also talked about how there's a template for when justice is brought to a nation or to the world in the exodus from Egypt, where the people of God, it was very clear that they were separate and that they were exempt from these, uh, this justice that was coming on people groups that rejected the Creator and that chose rather to worship demons. Actually, um, that's something that comes up in this parasha also. In Revelation 9.20, it goes on to say, the rest of humankind who weren't killed by these plagues didn't repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and stone and wood. And they didn't repent of their murders or their sorceries or of their immorality, of their thefts. Um, what really hit me there is the concept of worshiping demons. And this is how I see it. You are created to worship. Everybody on this planet is created to worship. And in the words of one of our great sages in Messianic Judaism, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Have any of you heard that song? Bob Dylan? Oh, you guys need to listen to more Bob Dylan. It's the best song. But anyway, it's true. It's really true. And... Uh, here, here's, here's, here's something that I, I've been contemplating this week. Okay, so idolatry isn't actually just serving, you know, a nice little idol of gold that you have stashed in your closet and you bow down to it and pray for a couple minutes a day for good luck or whatever. Idolatry isn't just, let's say, open Satanism where you're, uh, not even that, but like, it's, it's, it's more than just a physical thing, hey? It's like there are, there are demonic spirits behind stuff and they're actually the ones who are getting the worship. They're actually the ones who are being served. So what would be an example in our culture? In our culture, we don't have a lot of hardcore idolatry anymore. Um, that's, that's not something that we generally deal with. But we definitely, as human beings, we have idolatrous hearts, apart from Yeshua. And so we all have our idols, apart from the grace of God, cleaning that out of us. So what are some manifestations of idolatry in the Western world? Um, here's one that Paul said. He said that greed is idolatry. Greed, the love of money for the sake of money, 
that's idolatry. Um, sometimes I, I wonder, you know, on the greenbacks where it says, in God we trust, maybe they should have inserted this after in. For some people that's very true. In this God we trust. For some people the dollar is God. And when econo the economy is in a slump, God is dead and all is not well with the world. And my Savior is failing me. For a lot of people, that's, that's, that's how it is. I don't know. There, there are lots of things. You name it. But the concept here is it's not just physical objects that are being given one's affection or one's trust. It's not just a world system that one is relying on as over and against relying on the kingdom of God. There, there are actually demonic spirits behind that. That's a scary concept. And according to this verse, even when massive disasters hit planet Earth, people don't want to let go of their idols and uh, the demons that they worship. That's something um, that really hits me. Uh, we prayed about that this morning. In the book of Acts, the, uh, the emissaries of Mashiach, of Messiah, are talking, and they say that he was exalted to the right hand of God. Why? In order to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. So let me ask you, who grants repentance? Yeshua grants repentance. That's actually kind of scary. Like, I, I don't even know that I can repent of my own volition. I don't know that I have it in me. What did Paul say? In my flesh, nothing good dwells in my flesh. So me as a human being, apart from the Spirit of God and His initiative and His work in my life, I'm not going to go after Him. I'm not going to turn to Him. It's like from start to finish, He initiates even the repentance. And do I respond positively? Do I, do I, do I choose Him in response? Of course I do. I cooperate. It's not a forced thing. But it's interesting that even the repentance starts with him. And then, um, and then we respond to uh, him turning our hearts like that. Um, um, I think that's Acts 5. Yeah, that's not in my notes though. Uh, Revelation chapter 10. Uh, Yochanan, John, goes on to receive a, a specific commission... In to, uh, to utter some more prophecies and uh, it's pictured by a little scroll that he's given and um, in Revelation 10 verse 9 it says so I went to the messenger telling him to give me the little book it's a little scroll culturally speaking and he said to me take it and eat it it'll make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it and in my mouth it was sweet as honey and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Um, this, was a specific, this was a specific word just for him, actually. This was like a warning. Uh, we're going to give you further prophecy, and it's going to be a sweet thing to receive it, but it is going to be, it's going to be tough. Um, I wonder if that doesn't apply to us sometimes. Have you ever experienced digging into the Torah, discovering the truth in the Word of God, answering the call of discipleship, and it's such a sweet thing. It's a honeymoon. It's beautiful. And then after a while, you begin to like realize there's a cost to be paid for this. It's not always a bed of roses. Um, you're going to encounter spiritual resistance. You're going to have friends who don't understand you anymore. You may lose some friendships even. Um, discipleship hurts. Stuff like that. I see how each one of us experience this dichotomy. You know, as you ingest the little scroll, it's a sweet thing. 
but there, in your stomach it is going to be made bitter. Uh, another thing I, I've been discussing off and on is how Paul said that of all the spiritual endowments, the, the, the endowment to prophesy is one that every one of us should be desiring, that we should be praying for. Uh, and again, you know, we've gone over this before, but prophecy isn't glitz and glamour, hype like a lot of us are turned off to. Um, prophecy, very simply, is speaking the Word of God under the inspiration of His Holy Spirit. And that's something that I believe every one of us in this room have done very many times. And that's a gift that's operative in our lives. But I think when we really pursue God for that specific gifting and ask Him for it, it's something to be aware of. During those times when He causes your heart to burn and He gives you words to speak into specific situations or to people or even groups of people, it'll be a sweet thing because you'll be getting to know Him better. Like Moses, for instance, there was a very high level of intimacy that he experienced as he was receiving prophetic words for Israel. But at the same time, there's also a very tough side to it. It hurts. It can be a very bitter experience. Because we lived in a very messed up, we live in a messed up world with a lot of broken and dysfunctional people. And uh, you're looking at one right here. Um, so you know, sometimes when he gives a word, it's like Yeshua got crucified for it. And sometimes, in many ways today, uh, you will also experience being crucified for being a disciple of the Master and standing for. His truth. Let's look at the parsha also. That's just a rough overview of Revelation chapters 8 to 10. Um, hopefully, um, that didn't freak us out too badly. Hopefully, we have some practical things that we can walk away from those chapters uh, looking at. And uh, just, to, just to end that thought, let's remember again, Yeshua is Lord. So when those things happen, it's actually Him overseeing that process. And it's the justice of God coming to planet Earth. And it is our friend. It is the friend of every person who is upstanding and innocent. Um, yeah, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, sometimes, um, you know, with the Torah, I'll go over each chapter and I'll break it down and I'll make a lot of practical applications. Today, I just, I want to look at one theme with you. It's the theme of, um, it's like the active ingredient in experiencing the blessings that were listed there. So that's, that's the one we're going to look at here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, 26 to 28 is the idea here. And I'll just uh, I'll give you a humorous little thing to begin with. Um, several years ago, I was talking with one of the men who were on the leadership team of our Messianic community in Saskatoon. And uh, he, was, he was thinking through something. There was something of a trend in some people's minds that living in the city is bad and living in the country is good. So if at all possible, you should get out of the city and just try and find a nice quiet place in the country. Because there's more evil, I don't know, there are lots of reasons for that. And I understand some of those reasons in terms of raising children, in terms of, um, you know, if there's ever a massive crisis, cities are more dangerous places to be, etc. Um, however, I, I'm, you know, that was just a thing that was going on. I don't agree with that personally. When I look at we as a people with a gospel mission, Paul went into the heart of the biggest cities he could find, and he preached the gospel there, and he started congregations. And he didn't say, hey guys, now that you've come to faith in Yeshua, let's get out to the country and head for the hills or whatever. They engaged with their city, and they flipped their cities right side up with the, with the good news of Messiah. Anyway, he was, um, he was thinking through this, and I said, well, you know, you know what it does say in the Torah? It says, um, blessed shall you be in the country, and cursed shall you be in the city. 
Yeah, see, so right there in the Bible it says that you, if you're, you're going to be cursed in the city and you're going to be blessed in the country. Of course, you're tongue-in-cheek, right? What it says is if you listen to God, you're going to be blessed in both the city and the country. And if you don't listen to Him, woe to you, oi to you in the city and oi to you in the country. Is, um, is what he said. It's a great example, though, of like, if you use your theological cut and paster, man, can you ever mess up the word. You know, if we pull verses out of context, like, you can make it say all kinds of bizarre things. Wow. So, you know, that, that alone should inspire us to read the Bible in context. Don't just read a verse here and a verse there. Okay, maybe sometimes if you play Bible roulette enough, you just might get a personal word. And that's really nice when that happens. You feel really special. I've done that before. And, okay, the Father has given me verses sometimes doing that. Then sometimes it's like, okay, God, I really need a verse. I really need a verse, right? It's like, this is weird. So anyway, that's why as a congregation, we, we read the word large sections, and then I simply comment and expound on it. Because I want the Word of God to speak for itself. I want to read it in context. I think that's, that's really important. And of course, you know, this is a tradition in the Jewish community for literally thousands of years to do it that way also. All right. Um, what's the greatest commandment according to Yeshua? That's right, the Shema. We, uh, Mark chapter 12, we, we, we sing that at the beginning of every one of our Shabbat gatherings. Uh, in my family, we say it in the morning together when we pray. Uh, before we go to bed at night, we say the Shema. This is classic Jewish tradition, and it's very Bible-based also. Let these, let these words be something that you are in your mouth when you go to bed, when you get up, when you travel, etc. What, what's the first verb in, this, in the passage of the Shema? That's right. Um, if you read the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, it only has Yeshua quoting the second half of the Shema, love the Lord your God. But in Mark chapter 12, it has him quoting the whole Shema from Deuteronomy, which has two verbs. The first verb is to listen, hear, O Israel. The second verb is to love. I think it's very profound that even in the Bible, listening precedes loving. And uh, we're not going to go into too much detail with that because I've broken that down for you before. But just get that. In the Torah, in the Mosaic Covenant, the greatest commandment is to listen to Shema. That's right. And uh, in, in, in the biblical context, Shema doesn't just mean, okay, I hear, I hear you know, there, there are some um, sound waves that are striking my auditory senses and they're registering in my brain as words. That is not shamaing. The idea of shamaing means to obey, um, of course. It's an action word also. Here's, um, here's, here's another example of that. Because I, I, sometimes I feel like the Mosaic Covenant has been misrepresented. Sometimes it's portrayed as being a covenant of law, a covenant of works, a covenant of judgment, uh, something that isn't necessarily love-based or has a lot of grace in it or relational. And I'd, I'd like to point out to you that the Mosaic Covenant was actually uh, entirely relational. It was all about the love of God. And as we've seen in past weeks, there's a lot of grace in the Pentateuch also. But here's, here's an example of that. On Mount Sinai, Moses is like um, the intermediary between Israel and God. And so God says, you know, Moses, go and say this to my people. It's kind of like, almost like a grade school scenario to the nth degree, where it's like, can, okay, well, my friend's going to go to your friend and say that, that I like you, and then, and then you can tell my friend what you think, and then, uh, and then my friend can come back and tell me. It's kind of like that, eh? So this is, what, this is what the Holy One says to Moses. Now then, 
If you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So did you notice what the very first condition he gave in the Mosaic Covenant was? He didn't say, if you keep the law, if you work hard. He said, if you listen to my voice. So what's the heart of the Mosaic Covenant? Listening to his voice. I'll give you another verse that backs that up. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. This is what he says in Jeremiah 7. I didn't speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, so he says, when I brought them out of Egypt... Right away, I wasn't talking about sacrifices and the sacrificial system. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Listen to my voice, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and you'll walk in all the way which I command you, that I may be well with you. So again, the Mosaic Covenant, the core of it isn't the Levitical priesthood. The core of it isn't the sacrificial system that's, that's offered through their agency. The heart of the Mosaic Covenant was God saying, I want you to engage with me. I want you to hear what I have to communicate to you. I like that. For me, anyway, as I read through the Old Testament, it brings it to life. To realize that God has never changed, the way He is related to His people has never changed, and He has always had a desire for us just to come and engage with Him and hear what He's thinking about, what He has to say. There are three things, basically. Listen, obey, that's right. That was the last one in Jeremiah. Yeah. Wow, that's so true. Walking with him is all about relationship too. And that's about how we do life in general. That's a complete lifestyle when it talks about walking in, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, I want to give you the other half of this equation. I'm going to give you a definition of shemaing from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. This is what it says. 28.1 Now it shall be, if, if you intently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today. So did you hear that? He does say, if you intently listen. In Hebrew it says, if shemaing you shema. It's like, if, if you, you constantly listen. It's like, that's how you emphasize something in Hebrew, right? So if you intently shema to my voice, and, what was the other half of the equation? And you be careful to do all His commandments which I command you today. So, so we see in the Bible, like you pointed out, Hannah, that the idea of listening to God and the idea of doing His mitzvot, His commands, they are, they are inseparably connected. It's the same thing. Just like faith and works. You can't split up faith and works. You can't split up shemaing and the mitzvot, doing them. So it's a great way of knowing, how is your walk with Him? How, how is your shemaing? Um, if you have massive areas where you're just slacking off, where you're not doing what he said, where your, word, where your life isn't lining up to his word. And I don't just mean like not doing certain things, the things that are stereotypically bad in our culture. I mean the other half of the equation, there are certain things that he said to do. If we're not doing some of those things that are all about the mission of reaching our city, uh, preaching the gospel, bringing healing to sick people, etc., maybe there's still room for us to grow in our shemaing. It's not a guilt trip thing, right? It's just like, I have an area where I can grow. I'm going to give you an example. Yeshua gave a mission. He said to do certain things. These are mitzvot, like healing sick people, laying hands on sick people and seeing them recover, um, raising people from the dead. Um, there, there are certain things that were like commandments. Those, those are grouped under commandments. 
I, I haven't done a lot of that. I've had some times where I've prayed for people and I've seen them healed. I've never raised a corpse from the dead. There are lots of other things. You know? So for me, I look at that and it's not like something where I look and then I say, I get down on myself or I have a guilt trip. It's not about checking my goody-goody list off. You know what I'm saying? It's just like I have room to grow in my relationship with Yeshua and as a result, His power is going to be exhibited through my life as a result. It's kind of, um, that's, that's how I take that. Um, the New American Standard Bible that I'm reading from here, they actually, they translate the Hebrew word Shema, Shema to His voice, they translate that simply as obey. So where it says, listen to His voice in the Hebrew, if you read the NASB, it just says to obey. <laughs> I, 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 frankly, I feel some misgivings about that. I like the NASB, but I feel like they're missing at least half of the idea there. Because it's very possible to obey someone from a distance. It's very possible to go through the motions and obey. And like inside, you're just cussing the person out. But it's, it's a little harder to listen to someone's voice and not have a positive relationship with them. So, for me anyway, I like the concept of listening to his voice. I feel like it's a little fuller of an understanding. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, it gives the results of shemaing. It says, so if you shemaw, if you listen to his voice, this is um, what happens. And um, I, I want to note a little inconsistency that I've sometimes have observed. Sometimes we take our theological scissors to the Bible and we discard what doesn't fit our culture or what would cause us to have to change and we kind of take what we want and apply it to ourselves in whatever way we want. I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Some pastors will say the law is done away with, it's, it's, it's no more, except for the law of tithing. And then you'll go back and you'll hammer that one every single Sunday. I mean, I, I've seen that, okay? And honestly, I feel like that's an inconsistency. If you're going to scrap the law, scrap the law of tithing too. Because it's nowhere mentioned in the New Testament. That's Old Covenant, right? I mean, and of course, you know, I, I support things like that. So I'm not saying you should get rid of that. I just feel like you either have to take the Word of God or we have to discard it. But it's, don't play the scissor game. Um, I'll give you another example. Often people will say the Mosaic Covenant is absolutely defunct. It's obsolete. It doesn't apply anymore. Don't bother with any of that. It's all Old Testament stuff and we're not under the law, etc. There's that kind of line of reasoning based on an interpretation of Paul's letters. It's not the interpretation. It's one interpretation. There are Torah-friendly interpretations of Paul's letters and there are interpretations that are more anti-Torah. Okay, so an anti-Torah one would cause people to think along those lines. But often those pe- same people will come to passages like this, and all of a sudden the Mosaic Covenant isn't so irrelevant anymore. It's not so obsolete. All of a sudden it's like, blessings, I'll take the blessings. And we begin to appropriate those to ourselves. And I don't, to be honest, I have a hesitancy with that. My, my opinion is, if we're going to discard the Mosaic Covenant, then the blessings and the curses have to be discarded also, and they don't apply to you anymore because it's all done away with. But if you want the blessings, maybe there's that condition of listening to God that precedes that. Maybe there are some instructions in the Torah that continue to apply today that will actually facilitate you experiencing those blessings in your individual life, in your emotions, in your health, in your finances, in your family. There are a lot of things in the Torah that are still very relevant and that precipitate His blessing in our lives. So, you know, I, I, I think it would be better to just take it. Take the blessings, take the whole thing, but understand it from a new covenant perspective. Understand it on the basis of Yeshua's atonement and uh, the gospel and uh, things along those lines. Because um, it's kind of like this. Okay, if you're going to take the blessings, there are a bunch of curses too. Are you going to take those too? 
Um, and of course, you know, that, for instance, understood from a New Covenant perspective, we, we remember Paul said in Galatians, Yeshua did take the curse of the Torah on himself. So that part, yes, he did take. That doesn't apply to us. Um, if you make poor choices in your life, if you disobey God or live in total rebellion to him, will you experience curses? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But Yeshua has taken that for us if we want to accept it. Especially that last one, hey? How many of you cringed for that one? It's like, cursed is he who kills his neighbor in secret. Cursed is he who trips up the blind. Cursed is he who does disgusting things. But then the last one is like, it says, cursed is he who doesn't confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, ouch. That's what I thought. I was like, okay, you know, that one, it's like, that applies to me. We can't do the whole Torah. It's impossible. And so there is a curse that hangs there for people who don't accept Yeshua's atonement and how he has taken the curse for us. Um, I'll just list quickly some of the blessings in this section that apply. And I'll point out too here, firstly, contextually, these verses apply to the nation of Israel. These are national blessings. Does that mean they don't apply to believers from the nations? No. But what I would understand that as meaning is believers experience these things as they understand that they are grafted into Israel. They're part of the, the multinational, broader concept of the commonwealth of Israel that Paul talks about. That's how I would see it. All right? So the blessings for Israel are experienced by the nations of the world as they come into covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's, that's my opinion. That's my understanding of how that works. That's how come these aren't just for Israel. Um, in 28.1, he says, you will be Elyon. Elyon was the Hebrew term for the uppermost, the highest, the supreme. Um, it's actually a term for the Holy One Himself. He is El, Elyon. He is the highest power. He is the supreme God. Here he says, you nationally will be Elyon. So it's like, maybe it would connote certain things like having global superiority or supremacy in areas like economy, military, uh, politically, scientifically. Uh, this is the destiny for Israel at its best. 28.3, he says, you'll be blessed in the city and in the country. So it's not just in the country that you will be blessed. Um, here are a couple of really nice blessings for ladies. Uh, 28.4, he says, I'll bless your babies. And then in 28.5, he says, I'll bless your basket and your kneading bowl. These are like common kitchen um, tools and methods of storing things. Um, what would basket be like in a today's equivalent? That would be like your Tupperware and your pantry. He's like saying, you know, when you listen to my voice and you do life with me, I'm going to bless your pantry and I'm going to bless your Tupperware. And um, what would be the other one? Your kneading bowl. That would be like maybe your blender and your bread maker. He's like, you know, when you live your life in a relationship with me, I'm going to bless your blender and I'm going to bless your bread maker. I mean, really, these are just common household implements, right? So I like that. It's like it's not like these big blessings that are ethereal. It's like I'm gonna bless your bread maker and all the stuff in your kitchen and the food that you make, and it's gonna be a blessing because you're doing it with me. Maybe that's part of the idea there. Um, maybe in general we could also understand that as being a, a dietary blessing of our food supply, food preparation processes. Uh, blessings for farmers. Israel was an agricultural nation in 28:4. Blessing of livestock and crops, 28.8, blessing of the granaries. Um, that's actually a really positive blessing because grain can, you know, um, I grew up half on a farm, uh, grain can get all sorts of um, diseases and mold in it. 
um, granaries can get rot. It's a disaster. And it's a significant loss, too, of you know, food if you're going to eat it or of your income. So blessing on granaries is actually a very practical one. I've shoveled out... I don't know, have any of you ever shoveled out granaries full of rotten grain? Oh, it's disgusting. It smells so bad. You can barely breathe. So, you know, that's a really good practical one for farmers. And then in 2812, rain is a significant blessing because uh, the agricultural world basically shuts it down if you don't have an adequate water supply. Uh, for entrepreneurs and business owners, in 28.8 he says, I will bless, in the Hebrew it says, kol mislach yadecha. Kol is all. Mislach is like sending something out, and yadecha is your hand. It's a picture of your abilities or your, your capacities. Um, one, I, I really like the art scroll translation. It translates that as your enterprises. It has the idea of your initiatives. So he's saying, I will bless your business initiatives. I will bless your enterprises. I will bless that to which you send forth your hand and your abilities too. Um, For employees, in 28 verse 12, he says, I will bless all the work of your hands. So whatever we do, in any job scenario, he says, when you do your life with me and you're doing my mitzvot, I'm going to bless what you do at your job. Um, Joseph would be an example of that. Everything Joseph did prospered. He had like the... The biblical equivalent of the Midas's golden touch is probably how you could understand it. Later in this parsha too, he talks about serving God with joy. So, you know, even in any job scenario as employees, we can work and do all things for Him, the highest employer, and then we can do it with joy. That's a blessing. In 28.12, he says, You will be a lender and not a borrower. Um, he's speaking nationally here, but I believe that can apply on an individual basis also. Um, there's the idea of being a creditor and not the person on credit or being financed. That's a long-term concept. That's a long-term blessing. Um, it's like him saying you'll have a financial surplus and not a financial shortage. You'll be in the black and not in the red. That's the idea of being a lender and not a borrower. And he says, this is a blessing that I have for you nationally and probably as individuals as you do life with me and you structure your life in accordance with uh, my commandments. Um, I, I really admire my grandfather, actually. This is something that he practiced. And when he was growing up, he committed not to get into debt as a farmer. So when other farmers were going to the, the bank and taking out massive loans and getting all the newest machinery and buying up more property, and then for many of them having crop failures and going on to lose everything, uh, my grandpa just grew slowly in his farming enterprise. He used older machinery, so yeah, he spent more time fixing it. I remember when I was little, my grandpa spent a lot of time, quality time under the combine, fixing stuff with a hired man. Um, but you know what? He never went into debt. And, uh, and I believe the father blessed his farming uh, career in part because he applied that principle to his life. And I understand, I mean, there are times when there's a time for a mortgage or a loan or whatever, but as a general principle, this is a, this is a it's really smart. In um, 28.13, he says that you will be the head and not the tail. The idea of a head means you'll be a leader, you will be an influencer, you'll be a mover and a shaker. Uh, that applies to Israel as a nation, that applies to us as individuals too when we're really living our life in relationship with the Father, you're going to influence the people around you, you're going to be a leader on the job, um, etc. These are blessings. In 28 verse 6, he says, you'll be blessed in your coming and your going. In other words, in all your travels and all your daily activities, in uh, 28 7, he, he promises um, the blessing of national defense and military victories to Israel. 
And then in 28 verse 10 he says that the other nations will respect you. These are the blessings that he promises long term to the nation of Israel and to his people. And then of course several times in here he also he puts a plug in that this is conditional as we listen to his voice, as we do the mitzvot. You know, we're not just as individuals, as a nation, this is what happens. So, I'll give you something practical. Um, I think all of us in, in, in this room, we pray for the nation of Israel, and not just for the Jewish people, for the Arabs in Israel also, uh, for the Palestinians. Uh, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And often people will be like, you know, protect Israel from her enemies, and bless Israel economically, and these things, and that's good. But I feel like praying like that is putting the cart before the horse. Because these are things that simply will happen as a result of covenant fidelity. So when Israel is true to God, when Israel is listening to the voice of God, when Israel is doing what he said in the Torah and honoring the covenant, Israel will be protected from enemies, supernaturally. Israel will prosper economically. Israel will have like more than enough jobs. Israel will be a leader scientifically uh, in, in every area. And so, what should we be praying? I, I suggest we should simply be praying that Israel will shema, that God will open the ears of His people to hear His voice and give them a heart to respond. That He will bring His people back to covenant faithfulness. That's the heart of the matter. I, I think you could... Yes, and out of humanism, absolutely. If you could sum that up in one word, it would probably just be teshuva, which is repentance. When you pray that Israel will do teshuva, will return to God... That's where it all starts. And then all of that other stuff, it's peripheral. It'll just happen. So uh, that, that on a practical level is something that I would leave with you to pray for Israel. And um, I'll, this is my last thought about this. This is the thing that I have been contemplating most in my discipleship to Yeshua, in, in my spiritual life. It's uh, highly practical. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 7... There's a verb that precedes the verb to Shema. Deuteronomy 26.7. This is what it says. Okay, here it is. Sorry, 27 verse 9. In Deuteronomy 27.9 it says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, and then the NASB says, Be silent and listen, O Israel. Um, you know the Hebrew verb there for listen, it's to Shema. The verb before it, it's translated here as be silent. It has the idea of being quiet, and it is the word haskate. Everybody say haskate. So in Hebrew they say haskate, uh, vishema. And uh, I wanted to break that down with you because it's, it's a very meaningful verb actually. Firstly, we'll notice that there's a verb that precedes listening. It, the verb is to be quiet. Kind of makes sense. Often you have to be quiet. You have to shut your mouth before your ears kick in and you're able to hear what the other person is saying. Okay? Very practical level that applies um, on the job, that applies in conflict resolution, that applies in every interpersonal relationship. Being quiet precedes being able to really hear what the other person is saying. Um, the root of this word, haskate, okay, the root is sakat. It's like a... It's a Samech, Kaf, and Tav, I believe. And um, in Hebrew, most words are based on a three-letter root. Okay, so almost all Hebrew words have three consonantal letters, and that's the root. And then they take different forms to be a verb, or a noun, or an adjective, etc. And here's the cool thing. Three-letter roots belong to families of words. Um, In linguistics, you have certain 
sounds that are related to other certain sounds. So there are like there are labial sounds that are related to each other. That would be like b and f. I think, eh? Yeah, so ba and fa are related sounds in linguistics. And in Hebrew, this is huge because every word belongs to a little family of words that have related meanings, but they all have a different nuance. And when you study word groupings in Hebrew, it really gives you a fuller understanding of an idea. So I'm going to give you some of the... And that's called a cognate, all right? A related word that's spelled a little bit differently, but that sounds very much the same and has a related meaning. That's called a cognate. Everybody say cognate. Okay, so I'm going to give you five cognates of this, um, of this word. The first is shakat. Everybody say shakat. In modern Hebrew, if you say shakat, it means shut up. Alright? So that's what it means. It means to be quiet. It means to shut up. Shakat. So don't say shakat to people in Israel unless, um, unless you're really mad. And even then you wouldn't want to say that. Um, the, second, the second root is sakad. And it means to press down or weigh heavily. It has the idea of, you know, let's say you're under intense pressure, something is weighing heavily on you, often it'll just bring you to silence. You'll just not be as talkative. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Genevieve knows that about me. If I'm not talking, there's probably something wrong. Is <laughs> often the case. You know, if I'm exceptionally quiet, there's probably something that's weighing on me. Um, on a practical level, that's like... What would be an example? Have you ever had an experience where his presence was just heavy upon you? It's his kavod, his glory, eh? And it, you just, there's nothing to say. You just sit there and you just feel his presence upon you. It's the idea. Um, and, uh, another cognate is shakad. This is a fascinating one. This is a, these words, by the way, and their fuller definitions are based on the research of a rabbi named Samson Raphael Hirsch, very famous rabbi, prominent Jewish thinker in the 1800s. He was the ideological founder of the conservative Jewish movement. Um, we have two synagogues in Saskatoon, Agudas Israel and Sher Hadash. They're both conservative. So the, the influence of Hirsch is widespread and is highly respected. And I'm, 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 I'm getting these concepts from the research of, of Rabbi Hirsch. Uh, Shakad, Hirsch would, um, would um, break that down as being startled into energetic thought, watching with concentration, urging forward. So what's the ideological link here? When we be quiet... Let's say that you just block time out of your schedule for silence and let your mind kind of quiet down too. Um, That will often be the catalyst that will springboard you into energetic thought, into watching something with concentration or being urged forward. I don't know if any of you experienced that. I know I certainly have. And then the last two words are are, uh, very closely related. They're like twinsies. Um, One is sakat, and it means to bow down and worship. Uh, There's a place in the Torah where it says, "Don't, don't make like a kneeling stone. Um, in the place of worship. That's an evan maskit. It means to bow down. It's like a stone that you bow down on or whatever. It was, um, it was some part of pagan worship. Okay, so sakat means to bow down and worship. And then the other root, sakad, means to bow down and worship also. So there's a connection between being quiet and bowing down and worship. What we can learn from that simply is there are times when your act of being quiet before the Father will be one of your highest forms of worship. Um, I, I almost see it like this. I, I see there being two kinds of silence. There's a silence that is pregnant with love and that is full of meaning. In a spiritual context, there's a silence that is directed to Him. And it's very worshipful. It's a reverent silence. And then there's also a silence that's empty. 
that is simply there because there's a void of love, because there's a void of any connection or anything to say. And uh, this is very true in worship and prayer. It's also very true in, in relationships. So what we, basically what you can see here is just there's a time when quietness in prayer, it cultivates worship to him. Um, it's an act of worship. It can also be a time that, in which you will receive spiritual inspiration he will um, galvanize you to action. He will startle your mind into energetic thought. Um, it's a way of honoring him and giving, giving him great weight. Just being quiet with him sometimes. Um, I'll, I'll, give you a really, I'll give you a practical example in my life. Um, often when I jump in, in, in my truck, I'll just flick on the radio and start listening to music. And lately I've had the occasional time where I'll just feel this little prompting where it's like, I, I just want to be quiet. I don't want music going. And I'm really good at having a high decibel level going on all around me and still being able to concentrate. But sometimes it's like, I just, I just want quiet. And, and it's not just being quiet. It's like, I think it's like a little invitation from Abba just to be quiet with him. And it's really sweet. I don't, like sometimes I'm driving along and I just feel like I'm, I'm with him and I'm worshiping him. And it's not because I'm saying anything or doing anything. It's just being quiet with him because he gave me a little invitation. So that's an, that's an example from my life. Um... An example of the other kind of quiet for me would be when I get up really early and I'm super tired and I'm just sitting there quietly and it's like, I'm just sitting there because my head's totally empty and I feel so spiritually like, you know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, there, there are different kinds of quiet and um, that's something in my experience. I'll give you one verse about that. Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Kohelet, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. This is what it says. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God And draw near to listen. Draw near to Shema. Rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know they're doing evil. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in God's presence. For God is in heaven and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You know, there's a time to just draw near to him. Just to be quiet and listen. Sometimes it even says when we just rush into his presence and we're hasty to talk and we blurt out everything we're thinking, like Simon Peter would probably be a classic example of that. He says, that's actually the sacrifice of fools. It's better not to bring that sacrifice. Sometimes it's best just to let your words be few, weighty, and express the depths of your heart in prayer. Yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed reading some of the classic Christian contemplatives um, I, I don't really know much about this. I've heard there's a contemplative movement today that is like theologically unsound and gets into some wonky New Age stuff. I'm not really familiar with that. I just, just so you know, that's not what I'm talking about. I've enjoyed reading some of the classic Christian contemplatives. Um, some people would call them the mystics, absolutely. Um, Madame Guyon, if any, I don't know how to say her last name. It's a French last name. Um, I'll give you a couple books if you want to read about some people who have really gone deep in, in contemplative prayer and just being quiet. Sometimes they're even called quietists because they're known for just being quiet before God and having a very rich and deep internal relationship with Him. Uh, Madame Guyon, uh, Fenelon would be another, um, Michael Molinos, and uh, Brother Lawrence. I'm sure you're probably all familiar with Brother Lawrence uh, practicing the presence of God. Pristinia? Okay, that's another one. Yeah, so anyway, you know, if you, if you ever want me to like give you those names again, those are some good books. There's a publishing company called Seed Sowers. 
in the States. They're part of the house church movement, and they, they, uh, they translate and publish a lot of the classics from um, Christian contemplative. So if you want to check out Seed Sowers, they, they have some good stuff. You know, you have, to, you have to, like you have to do with any author, you can't accept everything that the contemplatives say, but there's some things that have really contributed to my inner life with Yeshua, and I, I'd recommend them. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.